Hour number two of Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned B.C. company, helping local business since 1892. If you missed hour one, we had Chris Faber on the show talking about Aiden McDonough and his projection with the Vancouver Canucks is going to sign an exclusive interview with uh, our friend, pal, and colleague Chris Faber up at Canucks Army now. Also... What was and what were the types of offers on the table for J.T. Miller and more on why they didn't pull the trigger ahead of the deadline? Uh, that came in the first hour as well after Frank Valley talked about it with Halford and Bruff this morning. The Stanley Cup playoffs sat like, I don't know, the first three, four games of the opening round were kind of dull. Like there were some mm. good moments, but... None of the games were really all that close. Mm-mm. It was a lot of power plays going back and forth either way. You know, so the games didn't really have a ton of flow to them. Once game seven came around, it was like, okay, the playoffs are here. Yes. And now it's kind of been just a lot more steady outside of what we saw between Calgary and Edmonton. Yeah. <laughs> that was a Estro. Yeah. A 15-goal playoff. <laughs> It's funny. I, I was doing like going through some of the stats today because there was a bunch of them. I was like, "Wait, the Edmonton Oilers scored 13 goals in a playoff game before?" <sighs> they used to have pretty good teams. Yeah, back in the day. That was back in the day when like 89 percent of the NHL made the playoffs too. Yeah, and incredibly, they got better goaltending back then too. <laughs> they had barely they barely had pads on. Uh, than what we saw last night uh, between the Flames. And the Oilers. But joining us now to talk about the other series, it is Arthur Staple, Rangers reporter for The Athletic. Thanks for this, Arthur. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing uh, We're doing pretty well. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people expected that Carolina was going to carry much of the play against the Rangers. And at the end of it, especially that game one, the Rangers got to feel pretty hard done by to not get a win out of that performance last night. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's definitely disappointing, but I feel like, you know, and it, they're obviously trying to accentuate the positives of how well they played for the first two periods, and really, we didn't see that Rangers team pretty much at all in the Penguin series, mm-hmm. the, the one that had finished second and for the fewest goals in the league in the regular season. Um, you know, Igor Shosturkin had a lot to do with that, but I thought, you know, against Carolina, who is really one of the best attacking teams in the league and throws a lot of shots on that, does a lot of things in the neutral zone and the offensive zone. They really weren't able to do hardly any of it, and it was really because of what the Rangers did the first 40 minutes. Certainly it didn't lead them to a win, but I think they feel like they played more of their game than they did at any point in the seven-game series against Pittsburgh, and that's a good feeling going into game two. Well, and you kind of mentioned you know, how they didn't play well against Pittsburgh, or at least as well against Pittsburgh as they did uh, last night. However, it's, a lot's been made about the Rangers this year. They're not an analytics darling, so to speak, but you look through their lineup, there's a lot of talent there. Is there something to be said about maybe them coming together? There's only one game that maybe they do find a way to be better than they've been at any other part in the season because they have some, some of those younger players coming together. Yeah, you know, really since uh, from about the the trade deadline on to the end of the season, they were they were looked a lot like the way that they played the first two thirds of last night. They were they really weren't giving up as many incredible chances and relying as much on on Igor Shosturkin as they did through the first fifty or so games of the regular season. So when they started to kind of revert back to that early season form against Pittsburgh, you, you felt like I don't know if this is going to be something that allows them to get through, and they really 
they did did rely on that on some of that high end talent to pull out the the first series from a three one deficit and, and including Shesterkin have had a really good game seven. But I think the the style they played last night a little bit more boring, but uh but mm-hmm. I think they'll they'd prefer that to the up and down uh you know, kind of heart stopping way that they played in the first round. Gerard Gallant gets a uh, nomination for the the Jack Adams. It's it's uh, interesting going through Rangers Twitter sometimes and seeing uh, the question marks of some of the deployment. You know, they always want to see Alexis for Lafreniere playing more often and things of that nature. But from your perspective, just how much has uh, Gerard Gallant meant to this Rangers team? I think he's he's really you know he's coming at the right time. He's 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 not really uh, renowned for for systems and X's and O's and complicated stuff uh, to try to change things up. And I think the Rangers were ready uh, for a coach who, who kind of, you know, goes more on feel and, and trying to put his team in the best position mentally and, and really being a team that he kind of leaves alone. You know, he doesn't really <clears throat> preach too much, talk too much to them. They're not an experienced team. They're not a, not a super veteran mm-hmm. team, but, um, but I think they really found their footing under him this year. And obviously the season that they had, shows that uh <clears throat> excuse me that that they were ready for this kind of coach to come along yeah and and the one of the things that you know Dan kind of mentioned the some criticism about the usage of Alex Alexis Lafreniere and I always find this fascinating because it's so easy to look at stats sometimes and players' ability and say, hey, this guy deserves or should play more because he's so talented. He does all these incredible things. But one thing you just mentioned a few minutes ago was just how the Rangers are playing a lot better defensively, or at least not. It was more of a boring, low-event game, but that's kind of what you have to do in the postseason as well. So not making mistakes becomes a bigger thing, being reliable and being in the right position. Like, Where do you think that part of, where that part of Alexis Lafreniere's game is at? And how much trust can he gain, do you think, during the playoffs? Well, his line with Philip Hedl and, and Capo Caco was by far their best line in game one. And mm-hmm. they've had a few stretches like that already in the playoffs. You know, Gerard Gallant was talking today about he put that line together. And those three played together a lot last year under David Quinn. Um, put them back together for the playoffs and thought, you know, are they going to be able to handle this? Really first first proper playoff series for all three of them. And I think from the first shift in game one, <clears throat> excuse me, against Pittsburgh, Lafreniere came flying out through a big hit on John Marino, got the garden crowd all worked up, and he's been flying really ever since. You know, they, they, they don't get a ton of time. They're definitely the the third line, and you're not really going to displace anybody in that top six. But but the way that they've gelled together, you know, Lafreniere really been aggressive, using his feet, using his body. He's been chirping a little bit. You know, I think you're seeing a guy who – you know, people were maybe questioning why was this guy the number one overall pick the way that he played the first two years of his NHL career. But with more of an opportunity and a bigger stage right now, I think he's really he's really stepped forward. And, uh, you know, it's tough to shine on this team. doesn't get any power play time because of the big boys that they have. And he's really got to do a lot five on five. And I think the way that they've played, they've earned some, some bigger responsibilities and some more minutes. And, and really you saw them generate almost all of the good chances that the Rangers had. And they could have had three or four goals last night. Arthur Staple uh, covering the New York Rangers at the Athletic, uh, joining us here on Canuck Central. Rangers uh, losing a tough one last night to the Carolina Hurricanes in Game One of that series. You know, so much uh, about this Rangers team is about it, how young and 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 up and coming it is, and you focus on some of those players. But um, the Rangers are going to need a ton out of 
Panarin and, and Zibanejad uh, coming up, but it's not exactly the easiest task. Just seeing some of the matchups and seeing how the, the Jordan Stahl line was able to nullify some of the Rangers' top players last night. I think you know finding a way to get those guys going against a really good defensive Carolina team is is a huge part of the series for the Rangers. Definitely, and I feel like you know Panarin definitely got some of the the headlines for the, for the Game Seven winner uh, against Pittsburgh, and it, it it really helped cover up what was a pretty bad game for him in that Game Seven. He took a couple bad penalties and was turning a lot of pucks over, um, and it wasn't a hugely impactful series for him against Pittsburgh. And then, you know the time and space that he usually likes to operate with is gone. They come up against a Carolina team that, that can match up well with all four of their lines. Um, you know, Carolina has taken a lot of penalties this year and that power play is usually where the, the Rangers big guys can get going and pile up a lot of their points. They, I think each team had about uh, half a minute of power play time in game one. So a lot of five on five time isn't really where Artemi Panarin gets a lot of his, uh, his good work done. And as far as the bandage goes, I think they understand that, that the Jordan Stahl line is going to be out against Zibanejad and Chris Kreider and, and Frank Vitrano. And, and you have to kind of accept the, the neutralization there. You get, you just got to tie those. And, and Zibanejad, I think has already been through this uh, in the first round where his, his line was out against Sidney Crosby's line a lot, the first four plus games. And Crosby had, you know, what was it? Nine points in those games. And they were really dominating. I think Zibanejad was admitted in the middle of that series that maybe they were focusing a little too much on the defensive side. Crosby goes out, he puts up four points in game six, another three points in game seven. So, uh, you know, this is a guy who can explode and, and really be a potent offensive force when he needs to be. Um, so I think they feel like, you know, maybe he's going to take a little time to kind of get used to and see what used to seeing stall and seeing what Carolina is going to do. And also that might free up Panarin's line with Ryan Strom and Andrew Kopp to be a little bit better. And, uh, you know, the, you've got to have at least one of those lines going. The, the kid line can't really carry them offensively to no matter how well they play defensively they obviously need these their big guns going a little bit better Arthur Staple is our guest uh, courtesy of The Athletic and you know obviously hopefully the Rangers keep going for a while in the offseason discussions don't begin in New York for for quite some time around the Rangers however in Vancouver with the season being over we're already into those type of discussions and of course JT Miller has been a big topic here in Vancouver and you know that we had some discussions today Frank Valley was on our radio station and mentioned that uh, the Canucks were close at one point to potentially trading JT Miller back in January I know you reported and others in New York about the Canucks interest in JT Miller how close do you think the Rangers got or did they get close at all to acquiring JT Miller this past season you know there certainly was a lot of interest pretty much all the way along and and you know Chris Drury had had a lot of cap space uh, to make some moves before the deadline. And clearly the interest was there to bring back JT Miller. And I think that, you know, the sticking point all the way along was, was Braden Schneider, um, one of their top defense prospects who's, you know, been called, was called up in December and hasn't, hasn't left the lineup really since, um, you know, Vancouver clearly coveted him over Niels Lundqvist, who was, uh, you know, kind of their other top righty uh, defense prospect. And, that seemed to be the sticking point. And so I can't imagine that it got too, too far down the road. If there were Rangers really only wanted Miller for someone other than in a package that didn't include Schneider and Vancouver did. And that's, you know, that's kind of as far as it goes really. So I don't know how far down they got other than the Rangers clear interest and whether that can even be revisited in the off season, you know, Braden Schneider doesn't seem to be going anywhere. He's a guy who's 20 years old and it's really, 
cemented himself as a very steady guy in the third pair. They have some some pretty impressive depth on the right side of their defense with with Adam Fox and Jacob Truba there as well. So I think a guy like Lundqvist is probably going to be moved in the off season. So maybe if there's something to do there, but I think you know the way the Rangers are going, if they're able to advance past Carolina, get to the conference final, they lose their first round pick because uh, that would activate the you know that would that would uh, turn their second round pick that they sent to Winnipeg uh, for Andrew Kopp into a first round pick. So I think they might want to start more thinking about is are they going to sign Ryan Storm? Are they going to sign Andrew Kopp to be their probably their number two center? And, and JT Miller, I think, checks a lot of boxes for them. But uh, but I think they have a lot of decisions to make before they even get to that point. Uh, last thing before we let you go, Arthur, um, how, how you liking our guy Tyler Mott? <laughs> He is uh, he is an energy bug. Uh, yeah. you know, he, he gets out there, and uh, I don't know how much offensive skill he has. I know he he seems to be a little bit snake bit that he hasn't scored a goal yet with the Rangers, but uh, you know he makes a big difference on that fourth line. They when they got him, that was kind of a sneaky little addition at the end uh, at the end of the, the business day on the trade deadline that they were able to bring him in for not a big cost, and you know the depth was really especially up front was the biggest issue for the Rangers all season. Uh, it kind of, you know, his addition really put some guys in the proper positions. And when he got hurt for about two weeks to go in the season and seemed like he might be out for a while, that was a big blow. And, and having him come back in game six to really give them more of a four-line look against the Penguins was, was a huge help. And I think last night, aside from that kid line, uh, Mott was really maybe the most effective forward on the ice. He's um, He seems to be a good match for the Hurricanes where he has the speed and he has the tenacity and he's he's willing to check and kind of be positionally sound and, and can also create some scoring chances. So uh, he's uh, he, he's a pretty important guy, even though he doesn't play a ton of minutes. And I think Ranger fans are pretty happy that uh, Chris Drury made that extra addition before the deadline closed. Yeah, he's uh, going to continue to grow into a fan favorite. I can, uh, I can, I can imagine that. Uh, at State Athletic is where you can follow him and get his work at The Athletic. He is Arthur Staple. Thanks so much for your time today, Arthur. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, there is uh, Arthur Staple of The Athletic joining us. and uh, Sounds like a scouting report on Tyler Mott. This is exactly what that sounded like. <laughs> did I, did I, did I, was I, was I surprised by this? Uh, nobody should have been surprised by that. No. Oh, he's becoming a fan favorite. Uh, he's great on the fourth line, does so many things well. Um, yeah, maybe he will score a little bit more. We saw his, his shot really came around the last couple of years in Vancouver. Yeah, he's capable of scoring 10 goals in an 82-game season, which yeah. is good for you know a guy who plays the role that he does, in, in, and he brings the type of speed and PK ability. And he kind of mentioned how him coming to the Rangers in that bottom six role really allowed the team to slot everybody else together. And wasn't that kind of our takeaway about Tyler Mott during the 2019 season before yeah. the pandemic hit that year? That he, you know, and I can't make the reference back then. The rug that really tied the room together. It's like yeah. a big Lebowski <laughs> line, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of what he was. You know, he wasn't. He's not this great player, but when he was on a line, it made it work. Like things yeah. kind of fell into place a lot better for your bottom six once you had Tyler Mott. So uh, interesting thought there from uh, Arthur Staple on the JT Miller trade discussions. We talked about it in the opening hour of the show, and it's not too dissimilar from what we spoke about there. Sat Canucks. Seem to want Braden Schneider more than Nils Lungfist. Not that they don't like Nils Lungfist, but they like Braden Schneider more. Yeah. And the Rangers just weren't willing to go that far. No, and it kind of aligns with what we talked about and what was widely reported, too, about, you know, Lundqvist being the guy the Rangers would be potentially willing to move and a pick. 
but not a lot more in addition to that. And you know that's what Arthur kind of mentioned. You kind of look at the trades they made. Even for Cop, it was okay. Depending on how far they go, maybe it turns out to a first. But as a second round pick, there was they hedged to some degree. As much as there was discussion around Drury coming in and ownership wanting a splash and wanting them to be aggressive, it wasn't about be all in this season. They're still they, they needed to have a level of restraint about where they're going, and especially with guys they have to pay. So they were never in a point where they felt they had to overpay to acquire JT Miller. Yeah. And this offseason will be interesting because once the season ends and teams, you know, take stock of where they're at, that's where the real desperation sets in. During the season, unless there's a GM who's really on the hot seat and like, you know, needs the run or whatever, whatever, it's it's very seldom where somebody just goes that far. We talked about traditional trade deadline deals. There aren't a ton that are this, these massive mega deals that bring a ton of assets late in the season. Yeah. So is a team this offseason after having disappointed in the playoffs or whatever, take stock and say, we might want a star like JT Miller. Well, it's interesting how you put that because like, who are the teams that are willing to go the extra mile generally at the trade deadline? It's the teams that are either desperate for, you know, we have to make the playoffs. Maybe uh, there's an ownership call. Like, you know, you got to get this team in sort of thing. Um, but generally it's just the teams that are the true Stanley Cup contenders. Like, why is Tampa going so all in pretty much every mm-hmm. deadline? Because they know, like, we want to be there. We can be there. Yeah. That's why we are going for it in that much of a way. Colorado Avalanche, same thing. Florida this year, we feel we're a Stanley Cup contender. The Leafs in years past. Those are the teams that are willing to go potentially the extra mile in a trade. The sense I get is the Rangers like where they're headed, but didn't see themselves as a Stanley Cup contender yet. And do they see themselves as that next year? Well, as Arthur Staple put it, Ryan Strom is an unrestricted free agent. Maybe Strom moves on because you're not willing to commit the long-term dollars to him. Mm-hmm. But you look at JT Miller and all of a sudden, hey, Lundqvist and a first might still be able to get this done. Now we've replaced Ryan Strom with a better player, still only costing us five and change, and we just made our team better with a player in Nils Lungfist who's kind of surplus to requirements because they are so stacked on the right side of defense already. Well, and that would work out for them, and it's a logical way of going about it, just like you mentioned, because it just makes more sense for them to be like, okay, well, hey, he's an upgrade on Strom, yeah. but we always have Strom. Yeah. So if, yeah, if we get him for what we want, great. We'll have him for one more year that lets us, you know, walk from Strom and maybe we extend JT Miller. But if you're overpaying for him and then letting Strom walk because you can't keep him at that point, well, then it becomes you're losing a player too. I think that's the, that's a, that's a that's a really good point. The Strom situation was always part of the calculus for the Rangers long term because you probably couldn't keep both. Yeah, you you can't you can't really keep both and. You know, Strom is a nice player. Is he? Uh, he's not JT Miller. You know? Yeah, it's uh, well, really the bottom line. And honestly, this is why you know there was so much discussion around JT Miller at the deadline. I said ultimately, I didn't think the Rangers were going to make that deal because I'm like, they're not trading Schneider. They yeah. made it clear. At least that, that's my understanding, and it's clear by their actions. They're not trading Schneider, and if they're not moving Schneider, there's nothing to talk about here. Well, and Schneider really just started to break out. Yeah, as January kind of came along, right? Uh, up until that point in the season, it was. Lungfish Schneider kind of getting both looks on the right side, and Schneider just kind of found his stride right around the time 
that uh, the JT Miller trade discussions really started to pop up. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. This is Canuck Central. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. If you take a look right now, the Tampa Bay Lightning are still up one zip on the Florida Panthers. They are midway through the second period. Florida is now 2.30 on the money line. Coming up a little bit later on tonight, Colorado Avalanche hosting the St. Louis Blues. Colorado, one three nine on the money line. St. Louis paying a ton of juice at. Can they pull the upset in game two? When everybody is thinking, wow, Colorado just absolutely crushed them. It was one goal, but it was only one goal because of the goalie. However, sometimes... You know, I kind of just like to play against public opinion. Mm-hmm. And in a sport that can be as unpredictable as hockey, maybe that's not always the worst idea. When You're ev- shorting the public. When everybody is laying their dough <laughs> on the Colorado Avalanche, I'm saying, you know what? I'll take the juice, I'll play a smaller play, and I'll play the St. Louis Blues tonight. All right. I like it. You know what? I'm... Uh, it's bold. I know. It is bold. But you know what? I like it because I do think the Blues are going to make this at least somewhat of a series. I don't know if we're going to see Colorado go supernova, you know, every single game. The thing about the playoffs that we often forget going game to game, and I said this in the first round, like there's a balance, right? Game one happens. Mm-hmm. Whoever loses goes back to the drawing board and says, here's what we got to do better in game two. They make their adjustments and it generally becomes much more of a contest in game two because we've made adjustments now and mm-hmm. now you're going to have to make adjustments to our adjustments. And you really see this, um, you know, it's it's really uh, evident in, in basketball series, mm-hmm. uh, and especially when you get into the later stages of the playoffs and the teams are yeah. uh, closer together talent-wise. But I feel like you see it in hockey as well, and I think the Blues are going to be a lot better. You know, they're seeing all the all the the notions of how much Colorado is so much better than they are, and that's still a pretty damn good hockey team with St. Louis. So they're not going to go down without a fight. If they can, I'm really really interested to see how they play uh, posture wise. Are they going to try to slow down Colorado through neutral zone a bit more, and can they gain a bit more zone time? Because you saw there was a huge disparity between how much time Colorado spent in the offensive zone and how much time St. Louis spent in the offensive zone. They have to up that. If they do up it a bit, they can take advantage of the way the Colorado Avalanche defend. I mean, they have some incredible defensemen. We've gone over this a lot. But Kill McCarr in his own end, once he's set up, he can get if the puck gets moving around enough, he'll make a mistake or lose a spot. Like He's not great at that. Yeah. Sam Girard, similar to that regard, too. And even a guy like Josh Manson, once he's in his own zone, he's physical, but you can work him. So there are a lot of their defensemen that can be worked once you're in their own zone. Devin Taves is probably their best all-around defenseman, and he, he's really good in his own zone. But they gain a bit more zone time, slowing yeah. down through neutral zone just a little bit. They could make this a real good game. It's one of those things. you know. Colorado's just not used to playing uh, in their own end all that much, so yeah. they can be quite uncomfortable when uh, it actually does happen. Stan Richo, Satyar Shah. You are listening to Canuck Central.
This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Eric Francis going to join us, covering the Calgary Flames, Battle of Alberta, the 9-6 game one that had uh, the whole hockey world talking. I, um, like, I know things get, uh, over-exaggerated on Twitter. But, like, were people really complaining about Brady Kachuk cheering on his brother? Well, I mean, okay. I do believe there is some fake outrage going around both ways. Like, I saw somebody just ask the question. Like, hey, what do you think of this? Yeah. And I don't think it's fair to ask. Like, ask fans. Like, I think it's great, but it's fair to ask fans. And I saw people go, hey, how do Sens fans feel about this? I think it's fair to ask that question, isn't it? Yeah. Does that show outrage? Uh... I don't even know if it's fair to ask the question. Like, really? why would you doubt that a family member is cheering on their sibling? I don't think it's doubting. It's asking how you feel about it. Why would you feel anything against it? Yeah, it's not like Calgary is playing against Ottawa. If it was the Stanley Cup final, you know, obviously uh, that wouldn't happen because they'd be playing against each other. But apparently, based on the discussions and the discourse that I did see on social media, yeah. Was that it, it had been a talking point with Ottawa Senators fans. Right. And they had come to a great conclusion, like a great collective. And so, the conclusion was that yeah. he signed here long term. Mm-hmm. He loves his brother, showing passion. And it shows you what he could, how excited he would be if he was in the postseason for his own team in Ottawa one day. So if, uh, if Quinn Hughes showed up to the Saddle Dome wearing a Chris Tanev Flames jersey and was cheering him on. That's not his brother. <laughs> It's his father. Yes, it's his father from his rookie season. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. It's uh, Eric Francis covering the Calgary Flames with Sportsnet. Thanks for this, Eric. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. I love the uh, I love the Brady Kachuk. I don't even think it's a debate. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's crazy. If you're, if you're not in, if you're not in favor of a brother cheering on his brother, <laughs> showing some personality, promoting the league. Then I just think you're an idiot. <laughs> That's all there is to it. I mean, I think the most controversial family uh, moment was Keith Kachuk not throwing his hat on the ice. Absolutely. That, to me, is the biggest I, question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just wrote a column on all this on sportsnet.ca. I don't know if that's what sparked your conversation, but I talked to Brady today. I talked to Keith. They explained everything. It's, all the answers are in there. <laughs> not trying to give myself a shameless plug, but I really enjoyed I always enjoy dealing with the Kachucks, like mm-hmm. whether it's Matthew. And I, I know in Vancouver and any other Canadian city, people look at him a lot differently. But, like, you know, you, one thing you can't take away, these guys have personality. And our game is so lacking in personality, I do believe. And isn't it a shame that there's some people out there, and I don't think there are many, but some that are sitting there going, yeah, Brady shouldn't do that. So <laughs> what should he do? Should he come here and kind of hide in, in one of the owner's boxes and – if he if he want, when they score a goal, he got to stifle his cheer. Like, come on, let's let's all be humans here. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking of Luke Shen, like, you know, uh, celebrating the the Stanley Cup on the ice with Braden Shen uh, when the St. Louis won it, and then of course Luke ends up winning it a couple years in a row with Tampa after that. Uh, I mean, we we've seen this before, just maybe not the the profile of the Kachucks. It's it's so funny uh, how we um, there's so many people. Like, oh, we need more personality in, in hockey. Like, players got to show show more personality. And then as soon as they do, it's like, no, actually, I don't yeah. I don't like that. No, please stop doing that. 
Absolutely. We shun them when they do it. It's yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a ridiculous double standard. I've, I'm enjoying it. I'm just sad Brady was telling me that game two of this series, he's, he's gone after that. He says, I think his liver can't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he's got to go home to St. Louis and start getting ready for his offseason training. Either that or he's a true Calgarian. He doesn't like, uh, he doesn't like Edmonton that much. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, isn't that funny? I thought about that. Like him going to Edmonton for games three and four and sitting there wearing red and unabashedly cheering for them. That I don't think is a good idea. Actually. <laughs> I, I really don't. Like I, I appreciate his candor, but I think there's also a danger element there too. So what, what the heck happened last night, Eric? I mean, it was, it was a sloppy game. It was fun. There was bad goaltending at both ends. I mean, I, I know Daryl Sutter had fun with it after, but uh, that's, that's definitely not how I'm used to seeing Sutter teams play. No, and, and you know, it's quite amazing when the Flames – win a game 9-6, a game that no one will ever forget who was there. Uh, and, and all the players are saying was, we got to be better. We weren't very good. That was our worst game <laughs> in the playoffs. I mean, it's, a, that, I, it's quite a feather in your cap. Actually, if you can score nine goals and it's the worst game of the playoffs. Like, to put it in perspective, guys, you know, that Dallas series, which was notoriously um, low scoring, some would say boring, but you know, I'll call it low scoring. Mm-hmm. Took, it took until game five for the Flames to score nine goals, and they did it all in one game against the Oilers. It's the highest scoring playoff game in the NHL since uh, in 29 years, guys. Like it's, Yeah. It, yeah, so, it, you know, both teams didn't want that. Both teams knew going into that second intermission that whoever tightened up quickest could win the game, and uh, the Flames did and the Oilers didn't, and that was kind of the difference. Well, and one of the things that we're not accustomed to seeing, or at least haven't been accustomed to seeing in Calgary, is Jacob Markstrom get lit up. However... He does have some spots in a season where he will give up five or six goals, and he usually bounces back. How how do you or how do you think uh, the Flames feel about uh, Jacob Markstrom bouncing back after his performance? Uh, yeah, like you know, I think we like he's got those stats where you know his stats after a loss or after a blowout are you know ridiculously good. And, you know, this, he entered the this game yesterday with the lowest goals against average in the playoffs. Um, he entered this playoff as a top three goalie, you know, as a trophy finalist. So, and, and I don't have to tell you guys, you guys saw the promise in him and, and how good he was his last couple of years out there and why he was so in demand. I don't think anybody thinks that Jacob Markson is going to play another game like that in this series. Um, but then again, you're playing the best, best player in the world. And he, he did have four points and he was a big part of, uh, well, all four goals he was in on, obviously he created all of them. Or, and or scored them. So I could he could it happen again? Sure, I guess it could against Dreisaitl and McDavid, but I'd be shocked if it did because the Calgary Flames and Markstrom will combine to get back to playing that tighter hockey that they want. And and the Oilers said the same thing today. That's all anybody talked about on the Oilers side, which is we got to tighten it up. We got to play tight defensive hockey. And and what's fascinating to me is you know the Oilers claim they've learned how to play tight two one hockey over the last two and a half months under Jay Woodcroft, you know, the Flames have been playing it for the better part of a year and a half. I'm not sure I have enough faith that the Oilers can, can button it down when they need to based on just a small sample size of two months. I, I think they, they think they can, but we're going to find out tomorrow. And I, I don't think they can. Yeah, that's going to be the tough part. I mean, e- even if you just look at the, the scoring discrepancy between the two teams, yeah, the Oilers scored six goals. They got points from six players. 
Whereas the Flames, I, I think almost everybody had a point last night. I mean, the, the yeah, depth, the depth between the two teams is just—it's not even close, Eric. Like Ed, Edmonton no. just doesn't have it. No, that's not even close. Not, you know, I hate—I don't want—I forever don't want to sound like a homer, but it, you're right. I mean, it's just—it's it's, it, on paper when you do that whole, you know, okay, who has the advantage in goaltending or physicality or toughness or uh, defense, forwards, depth, you check every single box on the side of the Calgary Flames, except for a rather important box. It's kind of a, a random box that you don't get to put in every series, which is best player in the world. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and, and, and guys, he, you know, I know, I don't think he's going to win the Hart Trophy this year and I didn't vote for him to win the Hart Trophy. You know, he was third on my ballot, but I, I really think that, um, like, I don't remember ever a player well, I guess in the last 30 years sort of thing, like when he touches the puck, you almost know something's going to happen, like in the mm-hmm. offensive zone. It, it, and I know we've got some great players like Crosby and, uh, you know, and, and Ovechkin, but I, I don't get the same feeling with them that I get every time that guy enters the zone with the puck, you're like, wow, something really cool could happen here. And that's, that's pretty rare. You know, I, I, you always, we always like uh, going through how these teams were built and, you know, Calgary, obviously, Brad for Living made uh, a lot of uh, shrewd moves in the last offseason. Blake Coleman really coming good last night. But, you know, the, the one move that I think has is, is helped Calgary maybe the most this year happened a few years ago at, uh, at the draft in Dallas. And that's the one where he picked up Elias Lindholm and Noah Hannafin. And those two, now that they've hit the primes of their careers, have just become absolute stars, especially Lindholm. I mean... Uh, I can't believe how good of a player he's become. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how he doesn't win the Selkie, but apparently he's not going to even come close. But, uh, <laughs> that, that Ber- the Bergeron kid's good. Don't get yeah, he's hand. all right. I, I, I'm pretty happy with it. But, but statistically, I mean, Elias Lindholm blew him out of the water. Now, the Selkie's not just about stats. I get it. But he was plus 61 this year. Mm-hmm. I mean <laughs> – that's just disgusting. And I know that the whole line that he played on was all, they were all in their sixties or late high fifties, but you know, that's a real testament to the guy who's the centerman on that line um, gets 40 goals, you know, uh, finishes for Johnny Gaudreau uh, also helps set up Johnny Gaudreau. And yeah, he's, I can't say enough about him either. Um, you know, I thought that trade was pretty lopsided when it happened uh, because a Adam Fox was thrown in there, and yeah, the kid's a you know top five defenseman in the NHL. But we always knew he was never going to sign anywhere but New York. Like I, his agent had made that very clear. So he was the throw into the deal that meant nothing. Um, Michael Furland, we knew wasn't going to sign anywhere mm-hmm. for anything but top dollar. And then uh, and, and then they got Dougie Hamilton, and I thought he was going to walk when he could. So anyway, great trade. Noah Hannafin had nine shots on goal the other night in that game seven. Like, he's just become so good. He just played his 500th game, guys, this year. Mm-hmm. He's like 23 years old, and he played his 500th game or 24 years old. Like, people forget how long he's been in the league. So, he's really blossoming, too. You know, that, that whole Flames blue line is so fascinating to me. Um, and not to get all inside baseball, but all six guys had career years this year. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember I've ever seen that happen. You know, offensively, they all – broke their records. Oliver Shillington wasn't even supposed to be in the league this year in most people's eyes. Chris Tanev was their best defenseman. And then Rasmus Anderson and Noah Hannafin were a phenomenal pair. That was their top pairing. It was, it was quite a committee. And then, and then the face of the whole defense, 
our good Branson and Zadorov, you know, the two big lugs that uh, nobody thought would be any good. But like I said, they were the face of the team. Well, yeah, and I mean, those two guys, and it's funny because, you know, we saw Good Branson in Vancouver, and when you put them yeah. in a different position, it didn't work out. But different teams, different situation, different outcomes, that is always evident for those big physical defensemen uh, oftentimes. But I, I did want to ask you about Chris Tanev because he did participate in the morning skate, did not end up playing in the game. And obviously, this is the first time he's gotten hurt, or at least hurt enough to miss a game for the Flames since being acquired. And ironically, in Vancouver, he was getting hurt all the time. And that was a big reason why a lot of Canucks fans, and even myself, I'll admit it, I was like, hey, don't re-sign Tanev to a big contract because he's never healthy. Well, he has been healthy in Calgary outside of what's happening with him right now. Is there a sense that he will be back at some time this series, or is he just out there for a spin? I think the general public thinks he's coming back. Yeah, and I don't think there's any chance he's coming back this year. Mm. Uh, I really don't. I'm not talking about the series. I'm talking about this year. You know, I know he got hurt a lot in Vancouver, and the word was that he was kind of an old, broken down version of his former self. But he just played 230 games in a row, even though he was in and out of the lineup for you guys. Um, I don't think anybody questioned the fact that he was a warrior. Like yeah. this guy would have to be pretty banged up to not play. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened when it, with his injury, he was lying on his belly. Two guys kind of fell on him, one on one shoulder, one on the other. And he got up really awkwardly. Like, he just thought, sometimes you just see guys leave and you're like, oh, that, he's done. Like, that's a shoulder or that's a, that's a broken rib or whatever. I don't think there's any chance he's back this year. Now, a lot of people do. Um, I think I'll, I'll cite this story because I've been telling it all week long. Well, five years ago, Mark Giordano, just before the trade deadline, the Calgary Flames were having a hell of a year, and I think he was probably going to win the Norris Trophy that year. And he tore his biceps and was done for the year. But because it was just before the trade deadline, the Flames were desperately going to go out and try and trade for someone to fill his shoes. They shoved him into his uniform and into his jersey before the next game and had him do the pregame skate, which was a complete farce. It yeah. was just to try and throw, you know, just try and show other teams that we're not dealing from a position of weakness. But everybody in the league knew it. I'll sub- I'll submit to you that that sort of mindset is exactly what's going on with Chris Tanev right now. They're stuffing him into a uniform for practices, and I don't think there's any chance he's playing. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear by the end of the playoffs he's going for some surgery. Is there part of this run that feels like? Um... You know, this is maybe their one kick at the can, given how many contracts are coming up in the summer and how, you know, if they're able to keep all of these players and, you know, give them the raises that they deserve, given the seasons they've had, uh, Brad Treliving's probably going to have to offload some of the players elsewhere in the lineup. Yeah, I mean, the only guys, well, yes, the short answer is, yeah, it's going to be a really tricky. They're not going to be able to keep everybody. Like, yeah. guys like Good Branson and Zadorov, and these are bit players, don't get me wrong, but you know, those guys are in for significant raises given how much they've raised their profile in their game. Uh, but yeah, Andrew Majapani, he made 800,000 or no, he made, he made 2 million this year. Anyway, he's in for a three or $4 million raise uh, each year with his 35 goals this year. You know, Matthew Kachuk is going to just, I assume he's just going to take his qualifying offer of $9 million and play one more year and then he'll be a UFA. Uh, but the big, the big one is Johnny Gaudreau. I, I, I've, thought all along for many years that Johnny Gaudreau will not return to the Calgary Flames. I think he's probably going to have 15, 16, 20 offers around the league for top dollar. And, you know, all things being equal. And I love my city and I'm proud of my city. And I think there's a first-class organization in the city, but 
you can't, it's apples and oranges uh, with the tax differences in different cities, the climate, the proximity to his home in Philadelphia. Like, and I'm not saying he's going to Philadelphia. I'm just saying that he's from the East coast. I, I just can't see Johnny Gaudreau signing here. However, the guy is making history. He just became a legend in this city with his game seven goal. Um, you know, there's something to be said for staying here and rewriting the record books and retiring as the greatest flame of all time. And I don't know how much that appeals to him, if that's a, if that's a factor at all. But I really think that because he's finally shed that uh, inability to play, to be effective in the playoffs, and he's finally, you know, having a really good playoff, I wonder if that sways him and makes him think, you know what, why rock the boat? I know I'm happy here. I know we have a good future. I think I might stay. So I, I don't know where I stand right now, but at the end of the day, money will talk. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's what it does. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. But given the track record and the contracts on the books and the team they kind of have, even if he does say walk, doesn't everything kind of indicate that Brad Tree Living is going to be ultra aggressive to try to find another star player somehow, some way? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see how much money he have, he'll have left over after mm-hmm. giving raises to some of these guys. Um you know, and the team does control guys like Kachuk and Manjapani and, and Shillington, and these guys are all going to get big raises. But, but you know, it's funny, funny you ask that because the first thing that came to mind today is, and I, I understand, I haven't looked into it, and you guys probably know way better than I. Like, there are apparently a ton of really talented high-end forwards out there this year on the UFA market. Yeah. Um, you know, the first one that comes to mind is, boy, wouldn't Nazem Kadri be a really lovely replacement for Johnny Gaudreau? Mm-hmm. Totally different players, but... Kadri can play the middle where the Flames covet players more than anything else. And, and I know he's got his checkered pass in the playoffs, but the guy's a beast this year in the playoffs. And he's a, I think he's a beast all year this year. A guy like that, maybe you could lure in. But, again, what's he going to get paid next year after this mm-hmm. season he just had? Didn't he finish, like, top 12 or something? Yeah, he almost had 90 like, points this year. Yeah, you know, like that guy's going to get, I don't know, eight. I, I don't know what the numbers are now. At the end of the year, you got to kind of see where the dust settles and see what everybody's worth. But, you know, Johnny's going to be in for 10 or $11 million a year minimum, I think, um, because there's going to be so many bidders. And uh, the Calgary Flames have said they're going to move uh, mountains to make it happen, and they're kind of over a barrel. They have to sign him. I really uh, – I didn't feel that way last year. I know they were trying to trade him last offseason, but it's amazing what a year can do. Uh, can you tell we're uh, we're in off season mode here in Vancouver? I mean, heck, you, you guys are in the second round, and we're asking about what, what the future of the Flames is. Jeez, uh, I've I've been there for a million years too. Before. I know what it feels like. Uh, man, what a game one that was! Really appreciate your time today, and I'm sure we'll be talking through uh, more of the series. Thanks, boys. Be happy to talk about it anytime you want. Cheers. Uh, there is uh, Eric Francis. I always fun catching up with Eric, and uh, I mean, you know what? Calgary is one of those teams, or at least Brad Trey Living, and the MO of that organization has been be aggressive, be aggressive, be aggressive. Mm-hmm. So even if they lose Johnny Goudreau, I mean, whatever they offer him, they probably turn around to Philip Forsberg yeah. and be like, we're Nazem Kadri. Yeah. I mean, they, they'd be in on those guys. That, that's the way I'd view Calgary this offseason, that if they, they can't retain Goudreau, that they go heavy on a couple of those guys. It was interesting to hear about Matthew Kachuk just taking the qualifying offer, the QO. That's, I mean... That seems like Kachuk's play and has been Kachuk's play all along. Yeah. He's going to be able to hit UFA at the age of 25. Mm-hmm. It's an it's an incredible position no player has been in for a very long time. Yeah. A player of his caliber. UFA at 25? 
Think he's worth ten? Like if if you if Flames were to offer him eighty million this summer. I don't know. He's a winger. Yeah. I don't know if I want to pay ten million for a winger unless he's like piling. He's got nine on the cap next year. Yeah. And you you have no certainty beyond that. So oh, he's really good. I mean, it depends. It all depends on where the cap is going. Yeah. And it is going up. And he's young enough. Honestly, because of how young he is, I would. But I don't think money's an issue with Calgary. I think Calgary's willing to pay him. It's a matter of does he ultimately see himself there? Long yeah. Term? I mean, I, yeah, ten, sure. If that if, if that's what it takes to keep him, yes. You know, Calgary is the team I think uh, that could give Colorado the most fits. They're almost, they're obviously not Tampa of the West, but similar to how you talk about Tampa being a bit of a chameleon, able to play different ways. Calgary can obviously play the high scoring game. They can play uh, the the low scoring game as we saw them do against Dallas. Uh, they're that kind of team that that's able to play and mold to different styles of a game, whereas uh, Edmonton, I don't know, they they could try to play defensively, but it doesn't always work out so much for the Oilers. Other thing I want to say on the series, Evander Kane. You know, remember how we were talking about Kachuk, you know, getting too involved with John Klingberg and yeah. throwing him off his game. That was Evander Kane last night. Like mm-hmm. he was just. Too much about chirping, and Kachuk was under his skin. He was taking stupid penalties. Man, Kachuk had some, some yeah. crazy chirps. You man. need some money. <laughs> you need some money. You need some money. <laughs> man, and then sitting in the penalty box. Yeah, him and Shillington were just giving it to Evander the whole time. And and I get why Evander jumped in initially is because Kachuk was going after McDavid. They kept yeah. like punching McDavid in the chest, trying to get him to draw another penalty because Shillington had just taken a penalty. Mm-hmm. So I get what they were doing and I get what Kane was doing, but at that point it just got it just got too far. Uh, he he's a, he's been a very effective player for them, but as always, it always comes down to discipline for a guy like Evander Kane. Uh lost it a little bit last night. Oilers are going to need him, man, um to be more like the Evander Kane we saw in the opening series against the LA Kings. And can Zach Hyman not look like a, you know, regular fourth-line player? Is that possible or is he is that what he yeah, the Zach Hyman thing. I can't. I couldn't believe the Oilers had six players get on the score sheet last night. They scored six goals. Their their offense is just so concentrated. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This is uh, Canucks Central.